Well, here is a fact. A fact that you are going to have to face when your next pastor comes. Nationwide, Southern Baptist Convention churches are not only failing to grow, we are losing members we already have. Now that's a problem if you're going to call yourself a Baptist church. That's one of the reasons I've been using the, the expression evangelical Christian for the last 20 years or so. It's not that I'm ashamed of being a Baptist, it's just that I want to reach people who are turned off by the Baptist label. The problem is, the term evangelical Christian has gotten a bad reputation lately. At least among the people that we're supposed to be reaching for Jesus. For these people, evangelical Christian means too white, too hypocritical, too judgmental. And they want no part of it. So here's what I want us to think about this morning. How did it come to this? Why do some people think that Christians are both hypocritical and judgmental? Have they misjudged us? Or, you know, have we given them reasons to think like that? Well, to be honest, some Christians do act like self-righteous, judgmental, holier-than-thou hypocrites. You've probably met a few in your own life. There are a lot of church members today who express very unchristlike attitudes and thoughts. These are attitudes that can harm the cause of Christ. Let me give you a few examples. We'll start with race. Billy Graham used to say that the Sunday morning worship hour is the most segregated hour in America. He said that 50 years ago, and it's still true today. Because even in 2021, there are Christians who express some of the most hateful, vile, uh, racist attitudes that you can imagine. They, they even express those attitudes about other black Christ people who are Christian. Or people who belong to a different racial or ethnic background. This displeases God. It angers God. And it infuriates fair-minded people both inside and outside of the church. Then there's the matter of immigration. Now, I'm not talking about the politics of immigration. I'm talking about seeing human beings as people who were created in the image of God. Many Christians today express hatred and animosity towards immigrants which is not only contrary to the explicit teaching of the Bible, listen to what it says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know, it's, it's kind of ironic when you think about it, because with, it, with the exception, I don't, I don't know, you know, Hayward and Mandy Roberts and, and I guess Dorsey Locklear, we're all descendants of immigrants. On my mother's side, I know the name of the immigrant who first came over from Germany because Pam traced it back. We're all immigrants, and many of them arrived illegally. Other Christians express hatred towards 
Muslims because of their fear of terrorism. Let me make this observation. It was first made by President Bush following 9-11. He said, radical Islam, which is an, a political ideology, is not our enemy. Is our enemy, excuse me. Radical Islam is our enemy, not people who are Muslims. Christians who express hatred towards Muslims harm the cause of Christ. Because people who are Muslim need Jesus. And when we express those kinds of attitudes, it simply confirms their worst beliefs about Christians. There are also many Christians, including prominent Southern Baptist Convention leaders, who express attitudes that can only be described as anti-woman. And I'm not, I'm not talking about an issue like abortion. I'm talking about misogynist attitudes that are regularly expressed from the pulpits of the United States. Many other Christians hurt the cause of Christ by being anti-intellectual. They reject education in general and science education in particular. In their misguided zeal, they try to alter history books, reject the foundations of critical thinking, and reach and re reject the conclusions of scientific investigation. And then there's homosexuality. As Christians, we know what the Bible says about homosexual behavior. The Bible calls it a sin. Just like the Bible calls extramarital heterosexual behavior sin. I mean, let's not forget about that while we're at it. But many Christians express pure hatred towards gay and lesbian people. They reject gay or lesbian family members, co-workers, and friends. They use crude language to describe gay people. It is not Christ-like, and it harms the cause of Jesus. Now, all of these things that I've mentioned are damaging to the cause of Christ. Let me tell you how. It's because it's turning off the very people that we've got to reach for Christ. Take the millennial generation. Millennials are the most unchurched demographic group in American history. They are tuning out the message of the Christian faith in record numbers. I had someone who works at Forest Lawn uh, Gardens recently tell me that one half, one half of the people who come to them for funeral services do not have a pastor and do not have a church affiliation. That's in Charlotte right now. According to research, millennials reject the, reject the church and Christianity because of the very reasons that we've just mentioned. They see, they have attitudes that are open to people of other racial and ethnic groups. They, they, they've come to see Christianity as a religion of white racism. What a tragedy that is. Millennials are also the most highly educated demographic group in American history. They place a high value on education, in, education in general, and science education in particular. They find the attitudes of Christians who are anti-intellectual to be ridiculous and backwards at best, and dangerous and reactionary at worst. And finally, millennials as a group are more accepting of gay and lesbian people in general and want them to be treated with dignity and equality in our society. Now here's the point I'm trying to make. 
millennials, Generation X, Generation Y, whatever you want to call it, are, are the present and the future of the United States. People of my age and older, well, they don't have to understand us because we won't be here that much longer. If we want to win the world to Jesus, we have to understand them. We have to tell them about Jesus. And by the way, those millennials who are unchurched are also the parents of today. They're the ones who are having the babies. And if we want to have any hope of reaching the next generation for Christ, we have to reach their parents first. Look, if, if millennials and other non-churched people think Christians are self-righteous, judgmental, holier-than-thou hypocrites, we've got a problem. We've got to let God work through us so that we can be the people He created us and saved us to be. We've got to let the Holy Spirit change us so that we can become what our song says we're already, what we already are. And that is people who are known by our love. This morning in the time we have remaining to us, let's, let's think about some of the things that we can, we can do to become the people who can reach people for Christ. Now the place we're going to start here is by recognizing the dangers of judgmental behavior. All right? Have you ever noticed that, that Christians who have sort of mean-spirited, ungracious, and judgmental behavior rarely go around and say, I'm doing this because I'm a self-righteous, judgmental, holier-than-thou person. They don't say that. Instead, they'll say, I'm opposed to sin. I'm standing up for what God says is right. It's a powerful argument. It's a seductive argument, but it's kind of based on some flawed logic. Let me explain. Take the question of homosexuality. Okay? Frequently, Christians who express hatred towards gays and lesbians will say something like this. The Bible says homosexuality is an abomination unto the Lord. The Bible says gay people are abominations in the eyes of God. Then they'll say, God hates gays and lesbians, and so do I. Well, here's the problem with that logic. It's all based on a misunderstanding of the English word abomination. Okay? First of all, the word abomination is never found in the Hebrew text of the Bible. It's not there. Abomination was a word chosen by King James scholars to try to translate a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is tuwebal. And the fact is, our understanding of abomination does not re accurately reflect the meaning of tuwebal. Let me explain. In, e in the English, abomination is a very harsh word. It sounds harsh, it is word. It, 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 it kind of rhymes with, with damnation. Maybe that's the reason we like to use it. And it carries the idea of something that is loathsome or detestable. Something worthy of hatred. So when hateful people see that God identifies someone or something as abominations, it makes them think that God hates that person or that thing as much as they do. Oh, by the way, 
The King James Version of the Bible uh, has, says, talks about a lot of other people and things that are abominations. You ready for this? People who make graven images. Sculptors, photo photographers, things like that. People who read horoscopes or believe in astrology are abominations to God. People who take advantage of the poor and obsess over their looks are abominations unto the Lord. People who lie, people who shed innocent blood, people who devise wicked plans, including mischief, are abominations to the Lord. People who are scornful and sarcastic are abominations to God. And even though it never is never appear, going to be appearing on a church billboard anywhere, straight people who engage in immorality are called abominations to the Lord. I suspect, as I was reading over that list, some of that applies to every person in, the, in this room today. Maybe it's time for me to explain what the Hebrew word towebal means. Towebal means ritually offensive or sinful in the eyes of God. And that's all that it means. Ritually offensive or sinful in the eyes of God. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to diminish the seriousness of sin. But, here's the thing, in the Bible, sin is a sin in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter what you do, a sin is a sin is a sin. Now this doesn't mean that murdering someone is the same as telling a lie. But the underlying cause of sin is always the same. You sin to reject God's rule and reign in your life. And that's why, what you need to understand, your sin... And my sin is the reason why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because you are a sinner, because I am a sinner, because we have come short of the glory of God. We're all abominations in that regard. We are all ritually offensive and sinful in the eyes of God. Look, when you choose to be hateful towards others, you're in grave danger. By your actions, you are telling someone else, that God, in God's eyes, their sin is worse than your sin. You're saying, my sin is forgivable, but your sin is unforgivable. You are acting as if Jesus died for you, but God, did, Jesus did, God didn't send Jesus to die for them. And that is blasphemy. Blasphemy happens when you call God a liar. And in His perfect, infallible Word, God says the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means you go through your entire life and you never accept Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. In the Bible, God has decided that no one is beyond the scope of His mercy and grace and love. This is the grace that saved you, and this is the grace that has saved me. But, but here's where it gets a little bit sobering. People who continue to judge and hate others need to rethink the matter of their own salvation. And by the way, I didn't say this, Jesus said it. Because He said that this kind of attitude may suggest that you've never really been saved. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're going to read verses 25 through 35. 
Listen to what the Word of God says here. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything like he had any chance to do that. The servant's master took pity on him. He was showing him grace. He canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. His friend has told him the same, same thing that he told the king. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which was impossible. And then notice what Jesus says. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The point that Jesus is making here is that people who call themselves Christians need to show evidence of a life that has been changed. Old attitudes, old behaviors have to be yielded before God. Love has to fill your heart. Even love for your enemies. That's what Jesus said. So that others will see Jesus in you and accept Him as their Savior and Lord. Now that is a lot on your shoulders. So how do you do this? Well, it's, it's not easy. I mean, the temptation to, to fall into those judgmental, harsh attitudes are always going to be there. But here's where we have to be a follower of Jesus. How did Jesus avoid all these traps that Christians fall into? Well, let's see how he did it. Let's see if we can. First of all, Jesus was not ashamed or afraid to be associated with others. You know, one of the quickest ways to develop a sinful attitude towards others is to only associate with people like yourself. Okay? So churches are notorious for doing that. They really are. That's why churches tend to look like mirror reflections of, of us. We want to be among people who look like us and think like us and act like us. We don't want to associate with people who are different. And here's why. Oh, well not here's why, but here's, here's another reason. We don't want to be associated with sinful lifestyles. We think that that would sully our Christian reputation. What would other people think about us if they saw us with so-and-so? Who I know does this or that or the other thing. Jesus didn't care about any of that stuff. He wasn't worried about what other people would think about Him. He wasn't afraid of being associated with sinful people. 
He met people where they were and shared his love with them first. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is not who Jesus was, but that's who people said he was because he fellowshiped with people who were outside the religious mainstream. And then in Luke chapter 5, verses 29 through 32, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was not afraid to be associated with the wrong crowd. Because he knew the wrong crowd was the people who needed the gospel the most. That's got to be our attitude. We can't win the world to Jesus hiding in our churches, worrying about what other people think. We have to be where people are. Meeting them, accepting them, loving them in the name of Jesus. So Jesus wasn't afraid to be associated with others. The second thing you need to know is that Jesus overcame prejudice and social stereotypes. Do you remember Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria? In the book of John, we're told that Jesus said, I must go through Samaria which tells us a lot more about Jesus than it says about his travel plans. See, most Jews would go out of their way to avoid setting foot in Samaritan territory. But Jesus went through Samaria, and he sat down at a well, and as his, as his disciples went into town, this woman appears, and he defies every social convention of the day. See, a Jewish man would not strike up a conversation with a Samaritan in general, and a Samaritan woman in particular. The fact that, she, and, and, it, and then there's the fact that this woman had come to the well in the middle of the day. That's not when the respectable women came. Well, they would come when it was cooler in the morning. She came in the heat of the day to get water for her family. But Jesus, knowing all of these things, did not care about that. He didn't let prejudice and social stereotypes keep him from seeing another human being God created. And that's what it takes to overcome racist attitudes and behaviors. A willingness to do what Jesus did. To see beyond prejudice and stereotype. And to see a child of God. Look, if you're a white person in America like me, you benefit from a system that favors white people. That's just the facts. We do. Now, it's impossible to change history, and dealing with institutional racism is a daunting challenge. But as followers of Jesus, it is possible to do what He did. The Holy Spirit's already, always ready to help. A born-again believer can overcome hatred and start loving and accepting people as human beings whom God loves and sent Jesus to die for. The third thing that we can learn from Jesus is that you can, you can love people with, without, without condoning sin. 
Now, here's a, re- here's, a, here's a red flag if you want to find a hateful, unloving, judgmental person. They will say something like this. We can't welcome, say, a, a gay or lesbian person into our church. They'll think we're condoning their sin. Please, give it a rest, okay? The fact is, we welcome sinners into our church every Sunday morning. You welcomed me. We welcomed you. It happens all the time. Look, loving and accepting a person who is caught up in sin does not mean that you are condoning their sin. Loving and accepting a person who is caught up in sin is what Jesus told us to do. If you still have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 44. Luke 7, 36 through 44. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus' willingness to let this woman wash his feet with her hair would have been considered scandalous. Jewish men did not allow women to touch them in public, especially in such an intimate way. And what was worse, this woman may very well have been a prostitute. Not the kind of person that someone like Jesus should have had any contact with. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't condoning this woman's lifestyle by allowing her to wash his feet with her tears and hair. What Jesus was doing was loving and accepting her as a human being a person who had repented of her sins and discovered God's grace in her life. Jesus' example has to be the way that you and I live. Love and accept people as they are, even as we hold God's truth and share that truth with others. But what happens if we find a person's sin to be particularly objectionable? I think that's why a lot of Christians have such a problem with with gay and lesbian people. I call it the ick factor. We don't want to think about what goes on in their bedrooms. Look, I'm a straight person. If you're a straight person, I I don't want to know what happens in your bedroom either. It's just a fact. But but regardless of those feelings, those deep-seated feelings, 
We've got to overcome those feelings of personal discomfort. First, because God says we must. And secondly, because we're supposed to tell everyone about the good news concerning Jesus Christ and the salvation He brings. Oh, and there's one other thing we can learn from Jesus. Jesus always came down on the side of grace. Remember the Pharisees who confronted Jesus with a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery? It was an open and shut case. Under Jewish law, adultery was a capital crime. And this woman had been caught in the very act. So all the Pharisees did was ask Jesus, well, you know, what should we do with her? You be the one to tell us. And here's where it gets interesting. These men were defending the law, correct? Who gave the Jewish people the law? Anybody? Who gave, who gave the law to the Jewish people? Don't say Moses. Who gave Moses the law? God did. All right. Who is Jesus? The only begotten Son of God. Now, according to the doctrine of the Trinity, what can we say about the Son of God? That He is God. So think about what this means. The Pharisees are asking God to make a ruling on a matter of the law. The law that God pronounced. So what did Jesus do? He, be, he bent over and began to write think words in the dust. Now we don't know what He was writing. Perhaps He was making a list of the sins of those Pharisees. But eventually Jesus got up and looked around and he, he said, well, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. That's interesting because what Jesus was saying is, look, your mean-spirited, unloving, judgmental attitudes are going to come to an end because I know that none of you is without sin. None of you have the right to cast the first stone. Jesus was teaching us an important lesson. A lesson that says, let's make our stand on the side of God's grace. Jesus knew what His Father's law said, but He also knew that God the Father is about grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. So Jesus turns to the woman and He asks her after everybody else has left, well, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? The woman said, no one, sir. And Jesus replied, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus' attitudes have to be the attitudes that we accept and put into our life. Every single born-again believer should show evidence of a life that's been changed. That's you. That's me. Things have to change. Even if it's way outside of your comfort zone. Especially if it's outside of your comfort zone. Because in the end, we're called to love others in Jesus' name and share the good news about His death on the cross and that salvation is offered to anyone who believes in the name of Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for 
this day. We thank you for this chance we've had to spend in your word, learning your truth. Father, this was a difficult sermon to prepare. It's been a difficult sermon to preach. But Lord, you want us to allow you to touch our lives and change our hearts so that others can learn about your love. Father, if there's someone here today who, who feels the need to say, you know, you know, Father, there's some things I need to renounce in my own life and I need to change, but it's hard. I don't know how to do it on my own, but I'm, I'm willing to take, for you to take me on that journey. Father, they may need to come forward and to the altar and pray. They may need to, to come forward and take my hand and ask me to pray with them about some matter. Help them to come. There also may be someone who is, who is here today or who's watching online who has never accepted Jesus' love in their own life. They've never received Him as their Savior. They've never taken the gift of your salvation. And so, Father, I pray they'll pray this prayer with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for Jesus. I believe He came to this world to die on the cross for my sin. Dear God, I believe that You raised Jesus from the dead three days after His death on the cross. And I believe He lives now, today. Jesus, I confess to You that I'm a sinner, that I've done things that do not please You, and I'm so sorry. I invite You to come into my life and be my Savior and forever friend. And if, Father, if someone has prayed that prayer or listened as I prayed and just, just acknowledged that this is what they believe, this is what they think, then, Father, if they're here in the sanctuary, I pray they'll come forward when the invitation is offered. If they're watching online, I pray they'll send me a message, an email, and let me know what's happened in their life. Father, some people may want to come and move their membership to this church by profession of faith and baptism, by statement, by letter, however we receive new members. Help them to come. Father, our hymn says, turn your eyes on Jesus. Help us to do that in all that we say and do in life. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.